Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 152, February 12th to February 18th, 1864. Last week, we checked back in along the Rapidan at Morton's Ford, action that will close the book on offensive operations for the Union until we fight the Battle of the Wilderness. We also had a good idea of what is going on in terms of winter quarters by reading a letter home from the Morton's Ford vicinity. We talked a little bit about what is to roll out in Florida, and then we had an escape from Levy Prison. This week, we need to talk submarines, so that means we're going to get some CSS Hunley action. First, though, we head out to Oklahoma to go over some smaller-scale action there. Before we do that, of course, we do need to talk about our Patreon content. And here we had some statistical analysis that dropped at the end of January. And here in the beginning part of February, we dropped another movie review, and that was The Red Badge of Courage, 1951 Audie Murphy movie. So that is posted as well. And then next month, we're going to continue on with the movies. But that is what we have so far. And if any of that sounds like it would interest you, uh, synopsis and review of the historical accuracy of these movies, then there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. And of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show, and they are greatly appreciated. Now, when we were last in Oklahoma, we were still dealing with the fallout from Honey Springs. Remember, that battle occurs in a terrible stretch for the Confederacy and will end the threat of sustained offensive action in this region. Now, that is partly because a lot of supplies for the pro-Confederate forces were burned at the conclusion of the battle. So, in many ways, Honey Springs is actually strategically more important for that reason than any of the casualties that were sustained during the battle itself. Could the Confederates have turned the tide in this area? They probably could have and should have combined their gathered forces, but James Blunt, being a particularly aggressive commander, had saved the Union troops coming out of Fort Gibson. But despite the battlefield success, this did not mean that the operations for the rebels would cease entirely. Anything that could potentially support the intended operations along the Red River would also be welcome, and so Colonel William A. Phillips would lead an expedition of around 1,500 men out of Fort Gibson to scatter the enemy. Additionally, there was the possibility of dividing up the pro-Confederate tribes, breaking the treaties they had made with the Confederate government while collecting additional troops for the Home Guard. Remember we talked about in this region in particular A lot of the loyalties are fluid, right? They're not static, so there's going to be a lot of trading sides, and especially as the war starts to go in favor of the Union, certainly there's a lot of individuals who are going to decide we need to be on the winning side here. If the column was so successful as to cut all the way to Texas, then it could seriously hinder the defense of Shreveport. You remember how we have mentioned Shreveport as being the base of operations for the Confederates. Banks had tried to dislodge them before, but with his Texas expedition, the movement had stalled. But now, a key objective of the Red River campaign is going to be Shreveport itself, so anything that can go toward 
making sure that supplies don't get there in an already supply deficient area for the Confederacy is going to be greatly welcome. Phillips was an abolitionist and Republican who would go on to serve in the House of Representatives for Kansas. We can get a good idea of his mindset in a circular he sends on January 30th. And this is coming from Fort Gibson, here in 1864. Soldiers, I take you with me to clean out the Indian nation south of the river and drive away and destroy the rebels. Let me say a few words to you that you are not to forget. Do not begin firing in battle until you are ordered. When you fire, aim low, about the knees, or at the lower part of a man's body, if on horseback. Never fire in the air. Fire slowly and never until you see something to shout at that you may hit. Do not waste your ammunition. Do not straggle or go away from the command. It is cowards only who leave their comrades in the face of the enemy. Nearly all the men we get killed are stragglers. Keep with me close and obey orders and we will soon have peace. Those who are still in arms are rebels who ought to die. Do not kill a prisoner after he has surrendered, but I do not ask you to take prisoners. I ask you to make your footsteps severe and terrible. Muskogees, the time has now come when you are to remember the offers of all your sufferings. Those who started a needless and wicked war, who drove you from your homes, who robbed you of your property. Stand by me faithfully and we will soon have peace. Watch over each other to keep each other right and be ready to strike a terrible blow on those who murdered your wives and little ones by the Red Fork along the Verdigris or Dave Farm cowpens. Do not be afraid. We have always beaten them. We will surely win. May God go with us. William A. Phillips, Colonel Commanding. So compare this to, like, say, a John Pope who's trying to inspire the soldiers in the East and the Army of the Potomac and how he's kind of taking shots at them saying like, well, we, I've never actually been beaten by the Confederates and obviously you guys have, and we're going to stop doing that. So I guess that's one way you can send a letter out to inspire the populace or the soldiers. Right. And in, in many ways, actually, there are some good parallels here because Pope is willing to wage a harder war and he does have those kind of strategies laid out in that address. And then take this one with uh, William Phillips and wow, that line uh, I ask you to make your footsteps severe and terrible. Just great, great, uh, great way to fire up your soldiers. I, I love that part. So very interesting to contrast with John Pope. The column would consist of Kansas cavalry and infantry, as well as Indian home guard and howitzers, a pretty formidable force. His columns would advance along a road known as the Dragoon Road in the direction of Fort Washita. To give an idea of where this is exactly, it's actually roughly in between Oklahoma City and Dallas. Middle Boggy Depot would be where Douglas Cooper had set up his headquarters, which would be a little to the east of Fort Washita, close to the Texas border. In fact, both sides would try to draw on reinforcements, Cooper from Texas and Phillips from Fort Smith to the north and east. In the meantime, Phillips would decide with his advance element under Major Charles Willits to push away Confederates guarding along Middle Boggy Creek. The forces in this area were of Captain Jonathan Nail's Chickasaw Choctaw Rifles 
as well as Lieutenant Colonel John Jumper's 1st Seminole and some Texas Cavalry. Jumper was a primary chief of the Seminoles and would become a Baptist minister after the war. Willits would move forward on February 12th and then spring on the Confederates on the 13th. The 14th Kansas Cavalry would eventually charge the enemy. Rebel forces would hold off the attacks, which included action from the howitzers for a period of time before falling back to safety of the main body of John Jumper's force. The skirmish had been lopsided, with 350 Union troopers up against less than 100 Confederates. Reportedly, wounded soldiers left on the field were killed at the orders of Phillips, the number of which is up to debate. Phillips claimed 48 were killed, while Cooper said only 11. The Union column would still be awaiting their expected reinforcements, which should not come. In the meantime, Phillips would order the burning of some civilian targets. Now, besides his heavy abolitionist leaning, there was also a lot of guerrilla activity in the area, which probably prompted the heavy-handed action. Despite there being amnesty on the table resulting from the Emancipation Proclamation, many of the natives in the area who were Confederate-leaning would stiffen their resolve. Even before the battle, Federal forces had raided several villages, which as you can imagine did not go toward winning hearts and minds. This raid would also produce several civilian casualties, so as you can imagine, that's just going to go toward the stiffening of the resolve toward the Confederacy. Union troops would eventually withdraw, with not much to show for their efforts. So for the remainder of the episode, we need to head back to Charleston, where we will check in on the first successful military use of a submarine in the CSS Hunley. Now there are a lot of firsts that we need to talk about in terms of military history when speaking about the Civil War. However, we talked about how submarines have been around in some capacity for a while to varying levels of success. Indeed, they had been used for reconnaissance purposes before, but never had they been used in a military sense to strike a hostile target. As we have mentioned in some of our previous conversations, that is exactly what was intended to happen in Charleston. There had been a successful testing in Mobile, which did include the destruction of a coal barge, but coal barges are not going to be the primary targets for such a weapon. The Hunley is going to be used for attacks on the blockade itself. If you can imagine a submersible that could open up a port, including one so important as Charleston, well, in a resource needy south, that's going to be very welcome. Not too long ago, we had Beauregard who briefly lifted the blockade, and remember how there was supposed to be all these rules about how, well, if you lift the blockade, then you can't reestablish the blockade and all that, and of course, the Union Navy's not going to adhere to that, but the prospect of maybe making sure that there's going to be more lanes for maybe blockade runners to get in or truly lifting the port, that's obviously going to be on the minds of the Confederate government, and if they can use a ship that's underwater that can't take on damage, that's going to be even better. Remember, too, that, that we have actually documented several tests and setbacks, which did include the death of the primary creator of the sub in Hunley, so it's not going to be easy. Let's first backtrack and talk through what has been going on in Charleston. Now, it may surprise you to know that not all the Confederates were as gung-ho to continue to use the submarine. PGT Beauregard would be against its use, saying that it was more dangerous than anything, 
having just sucked down the majority of its crew, but the project would continue, with Lieutenant George Dixon at the helm. Dixon had been described as a brave man, having been wounded at the Battle of Shiloh. Reportedly, there was a claim a gold piece in his pocket was given to him by a sweetheart and had saved his life, but this could have also been Dixon joking or exaggerating. Immediately, he would throw himself into the raising and repair of the submarine, so that in November 1863, the vessel was out of the water. Divers had successfully salvaged her, and were paid less than was promised by the Confederate government. A new compass was installed that would allow for navigation, especially once submerged, although it was not the best device for the job. Additionally, it was devised that opening of the hatches would be better than a previous vent system for the intake of oxygen. In the meantime, the Union Navy was aware that there would be such a weapon. Remember that with Hampton Roads, the CSS Virginia was not really a surprise either. Interestingly, Dixon was recruiting sailors from the CSS Indian Chief. You remember that the Hunley had safely submerged under the vessel, so maybe getting men from that ship would have been a wise decision, given how deadly the submarine had been so far. Two men from this ship did desert, however, and gave Admiral Dahlgren the necessary information. I don't necessarily blame them if I had been recruited to go into a metal tin box that had just sunk and pretty much killed everybody on board, I probably would not have been too excited about that either. And obviously, maybe giving a heads up to the Union Navy might have been appealing as well. These two sailors would even construct a wooden model to give to Dahlgren, and he would in turn send that on to Gideon Wells of the Naval Department. The Navy would give the following report. January 7th, 1864. I have reliable information that the Rebels have two torpedo boats ready for service, which may be expected on the first night when the weather is suitable for their movement. One of these is the David, which attacked the Ironsides in October, the other is similar to it. There is also one of another kind, which is nearly submerged, and can be entirely so. It is intended to go under the bottoms of vessels and then operate. There is believed by my informant to be sure of well working, though from bad management it has hereto met with accidents and was lying off Mount Pleasant two nights since. There being every reason to expect a visit from some or all of these torpedoes, the greatest vigilance will be needed to guard against them. The ironclads must have their fenders rigged out, and their own boats in motion about them. A netting must be dropped overboard from the ends of the fenders, kept down with shot, and extended along the whole length of the sides, howitzers loaded with canister on the decks, and a calcium for each monitor. The tugs and picket boats must be incessantly upon lookout when the water is not rough, whether the sea is clear or rainy. I observe the ironclads are not anchored so as to be entirely clear of each other's fire if opened suddenly in the dark. This must be corrected, and Captain Rowan will assign the monitor's suitable position for this purpose, particularly with reference to his own vessel. It is also advisable not to anchor in the deepest part of the channel, for, by not leaving much space between the bottom of the vessel and the bottom of the channel, it will be impossible for the diving torpedo to operate, except on the sides, and there will be less difficulty in raising a vessel if sunk. So, pretty good idea and pretty good strategies, I guess I should say, from the U.S. Navy here. They have a pretty sound game plan to try to deal with the Hunley, right? They're going to have extra vigilance. They're going to have boats and nets. 
They're going to be in shallower water. So a lot of preparation has been made to potentially handle such an event. In the meantime, the crew members who were selected went through a kind of training. At first, they were sitting in the Hunley after refitting, and there would be dry runs. You remember that there was a semi-submersible that had attacked the USS New Ironsides, while the CSS David would tow the Hunley out toward the enemy. This would give the crew a nightly dry run at the enemy ships. Previously, they had trained in the daytime, but Dixon was aware that they would need to log hours in the darkness. Eventually, the Heinlein crew would work their way up to being able to be submerged for up to 2.5 hours, which was more than it had been thought. The Union ships had developed a boom system to try to protect against the attacks from vessels like the David, however. We may have mentioned when talking about the submarine before, but an explosive would be towed behind the Hunley. This, of course, would pose a problem. Already, there had been almost an accident with the David, and the explosive getting caught up in that vessel meaning that both her and the Hunley could have been destroyed. This is where the explosive at the end of a spar would come into play, getting past the makeshift defenses. So instead of, say, a explosive device that's floating on top of the water, that's probably fairly easy defensible, right? If you put something in its way, it's not going to be able to hit the ship. But if you have a explosive that's attached to a spar underwater, then it's going to be harder necessarily to stop that even if you have a net right it would be very different considering now they needed to not only just guide an explosive being towed but now they need to actually make contact and then hopefully safely disengage remember that the problem with this semi-submersible vessel was that there had been a lot of water coming down on top of her after the explosion causing a great impact but on the flip side there was real evidence that the system was going to work while the Hunley hopefully would not have that problem, there is still going to need to be a change in perspective. We should consider the psychological effect on both sides. Of course, with the Union ships knowing that something was out there, this would prove to be nerve-wracking. The Confederate crew of the submarine would also be affected in that they could be at a safe distance and release the explosive, but now they were going to have to be very close to the explosion itself and even get closer to the enemy, so there's two chances things could go wrong and you could take on fire. Additionally, there was a lot of work going into training. By training, we know that they were crank operating the vessel, so as you can imagine, it was not easy. The Hunley would then move to Sullivan's Island, if you remember that location being part of the Charleston defenses. By this time, we had the abandoning of Wagner and the rendering of Fort Sumter. But this did not mean there was no more defense left. The crew would practice being submerged and continue their new form of attack. Dixon would write a letter from his base of operations, which we have here. February 5th, 1864. Captain John F. Cothran, commanding Cedar Point, Company A, 21st Alabama Regiment, Mobile, Alabama. Friend John, your letter of the 29th came to hand today and contents duly noted. I'm glad McCullough has gotten to be a lieutenant. He has served long enough for it. You stated my perspective was very much needed on your little island. I have no doubt it is, but when will I get there is far more than I am able to tell at present. For beyond a doubt, I'm fastened to Charleston and its approaches until I'm able to blow up some of their Yankee ships. If I wanted to leave here, I could not do it. And I doubt very much if an order from General Maury 
would have any effect towards bringing me back. I've been here over three months, have worked very hard. In fact, I am working all the time. My headquarters are on Sullivan's Island, and a more uncomfortable place could not be found in the Confederacy. You spoke of being on the front and holding the post of honor. Now, John, make one trip to the besieged city of Charleston, and your post of honor and all danger that threatens Mobile will fade away. For the last six weeks, I have not been out of the range of the shells, and often I am forced to go within very close proximity of the Yankee battery. I do not want you all the company to think that because I am absent from them that mine is any pleasant duty, or that I am absent from them because I believe there is any post of honor or fame where there is any danger. I think it must be at Charleston, for if you wish to see war every day and night, this is the place to see it. Charleston and its defenders will occupy the most conspicuous place in the history of the war, and it shall be as much glory as I shall wish if I can inscribe myself as one of its defenders. My duty is more arduous than that of an officer of the 21st Alabama. Simply because I am not present to fulfill the duties of a lieutenant, there are many that have formed the opinion that I am doing nothing, but I say that I have done more already than any of the 21st. Alabama and I stand ready to prove my assertion by the best and highest military authority. What more I will do, time alone will tell. My kindest regards to Charlie and all inquiring friends. Hoping to hear from you soon, I remain your friend, George Dixon. As the crew trained, there would be a newcomer to the blockade fleet. Not a newcomer entirely, the USS Housatonic had been involved in the attack on Charleston before, but she had also been engaged in catching blockade runners. Charles Pickering would pull her into position in February 1864. Pickering was a good choice for command. He had held two others prior to the Housatonic. But for the Confederates, this would be a good target for Dixon. He had already trained his crew, and they were itching for an opportunity to get the enemy. It was decided to wait for a night where there was adequate cloud cover, However, the approach to the Housatonic was proving very tempting. February 17, 1864 would be the night in which the C.S. Hunley would move out from an inlet, approaching the enemy vessel. It was decided that blue beacons would be lit on the submarine so that fires could be lit on the shoreline so that the Hunley could return after their mission was accomplished. Hold that thought, though, as I mentioned that, and you will see shortly, what we do not exactly know what happens to the sub once she gets underway. It seems that at some point the vessel will surface having traveled underwater for a spell. The watch officer of the U.S. Navy ship would corroborate that he spotted the Hunley as she was gaining speed on the Housatonic, beating to quarters once he did, so it is possible that this was the case. Originally, it was thought that perhaps it was a porpoise, and according to the ship design, this would make sense. The crew of the Housatonic would use small arms to try to take out the enemy vessel. It would actually have been bad if a well-placed shot had hit certain places on the Hunley, so despite being made out of iron, it was not entirely out of the realm that bullets could have caused the intake of water. The Hunley was able to successfully detonate the torpedo spar, however, which happened before the cannon on the Housatonic could be brought to bear. In less than five minutes, the Housatonic would sink with five of the 155 men being killed in the process. The explosion might have been difficult for the Hunley to take as she backed away from its target, the submarine never having been so close to a detonation before. Pickering himself was wounded in the explosion and sinking. He would delegate a report to another officer, who would then pass it on to Dahlgren, 
Sir, I have the honor of making the report of the sinking of the USS Housatonic by a rebel torpedo off Charleston, South Carolina on the evening of the 17th instant. About 8.45 p.m., the officer of the deck, acting master J.K. Crosby, discovered something in the water about 100 yards from and moving toward the ship. It had the appearance of a plank moving on the water. It came directly toward the ship, the time from when it was first seen till it was close alongside being about two minutes. During this time, the chain was slipped, engine backed, and all hands called to quarters. The torpedo struck the ship forward of the mizzenmast on the starboard side in a line with the magazine. Having the after-pivot gun pivoted to port, we were unable to bring a gun to bear upon her. About one minute after she was close alongside, the explosion took place, the ship sinking to stern first and heeling to port as she sank. Most of the crew saved themselves by going into the rigging. While a boat was dispatched to the Canadauga, this vessel came gallantly to our assistance and succeeded in rescuing all but the following named officers and men. Ensign E.C. Hazeltine, Captains Cork C.O. Muzzy, Quartermaster John Williams, Landsman Theodore Parker, Second Class Fireman John Walsh. The above officers and men are missing and are supposed to have been drowned. Captain Pickering was seriously bruised by the explosion and is at present unable to make a report. The Confederates would wait in vain for the Hunley to return. Remember that the ship might have been damaged. A sailor on the Housatonic would record that there were blue beacons lit on the water. Dixon probably let them to announce the success of the mission. Fires were then lit to guide the ship back in. However, the CSS Hunley would never return. The U.S. Navy would put an effort into trying to find the sunken vessel, but they were also unsuccessful. In 1995, a team finally found her, which gives us a better idea of maybe what could have happened. The skeletons of all the crew members were found, seated, and without any signs of trauma, which might mean they died as part of the explosion. It was previously theorized that they had been unintentionally rammed, but the evidence would not support this. Extensive efforts were launched to raise the Hunley, which I might cover on a future episode, but for now, we will leave the first successful combat sub where she lay. This is just another example of how far the Confederacy was willing to go to innovate in an effort to lift the blockades. So we're going to go ahead and call it a day there. We spent some time out in Oklahoma with the brutal small action at Middle Boggy Depot. It will be conducive of the kind of warfare waged in that area. We also covered in detail the CSS Hunley, its preparation, and the attack which sank the USS Housatonic. Next week, we will head to Georgia to check in on the situation there. Afterwards, we will check in at Florida to fight the largest land battle that's going to occur in that state, Ulusti. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.